Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Peter Christofides at our Kubalup campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. So good morning. So this week, the power of earnest prayer. The power of earnest prayer. The great theologian Andrew Murray said, The man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization history. Let me draw your attention to that quote once again. The man or woman who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. As we look back, every major awakening in Christianity has come because of the saturation of prayer, whether it's in a church on a university campus, in the workplace, they've all started off with one specific root foundation, and that has been prayer. If you look at the next uh, slide there, a quote by Samuel Chadwick from The Path of Prayer, he says, The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of prayer. It brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life. It brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. Now, folk, it's quite easy for me to to make you feel guilty by saying two things. You don't give enough and you don't pray enough. But that's not the point, you see. From this occasion in Acts chapter 12, we'll begin to see how these, how God uses a man to accomplish his purposes. And that's uh, through people who are praying for this man uh, when everything looked like doom and gloom. As I was preparing this, I was challenged about my own personal prayer life. What is it like? Am I praying enough? Clearly not, because I could never pray enough. But am I even praying the way God wants me to pray the little that I am praying? Don Carson says that if we really want to embarrass one another, let's ask one another about our prayer lives. And he went and he did some research and he said, those who are studying the scriptures to become missionaries and pastors in society Only 6% of those who are interviewed have a quiet time, either in the morning or in the evening. I don't want to repeat that statistic because it's shameful. 6% of those who are becoming ministers of the gospel uh, formally are prayers. I think as we look at what the Holy Spirit can do, it's important for us and I want to have a look at, at a passage uh, in Luke before I go to the passage in Acts. And we see that Luke and, and Acts are, are two books that uh, first were written in one volume. Dr. Luke writes about who Jesus Christ is, and then he continues that process as the Holy Spirit falls on the church and the church is born. And so I want us to just have a look at uh, a couple of verses in Luke chapter 11. Uh, where 
the disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. The word teach there, vidaskomi, uh, impart to us knowledge on how to pray. Lord, instruct us on how to tap in. Do you realize that they never ever went to Jesus, these disciples, and said, Lord, teach us how to perform miracles. Lord, teach us how to cast out demons. No, Lord, teach us to pray. Why? Because as you tap in to the powerhouse of God, it's through prayer. It's through entering in through prayer. And so we read in verse 13, How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so it's, it's, it's prayer that is the power of the Holy Spirit to penetrate whatever the situation might be. And then you see Jesus teaching a little story there uh, about somebody who receives visitors in the middle of the night. And when you receive a visitor culturally at that particular time, you would assume that they would be hungry because they'd been traveling at night. Well, so they could have waited uh, until the morning, but they, they come, they see there is perhaps a little bit of desperation. This particular homeowner has a knock on the door, and these visitors come, and there's no bread. And so he goes to his neighbor, and he starts harassing his neighbor. Says, open up. I've got visitors. Some bread, please. I will give it back to you tomorrow. Some bread, please, to be able to give my visitors something to eat. What he does is he goes, and he knows that his friend and his friend's family or his neighbor is asleep. He goes and persistently knocks on the door. And we see that probably he woke up the whole neighbor, or that whole family, because small houses, not uh, our big houses today, where the kids are in the back, they all kind of were together, goes and bangs on the door. Not secretly, SMS, mate, do you have three spare loaves of bread because I've got neighbors? No. Knocks on the door persistently. And eventually his, his neighbor wakes up and gives him some bread. And we see in verse 8 there, yet Jesus says, because of the impudence or the harassing, if you like, the shameless audacity of the neighbor, uh, some translations say shameless persistence of the neighbor. That word, anesia, means without modesty. The person is shameless. I mean, I would never dare, if I needed to go to work at 2 o'clock in the morning, I would never dare uh, go wake my neighbor up and say, mate, can you help me reverse your car to jumper leads to kickstart my car? I don't know if you would do that. Hopefully not. But, but you kind of go, wow, this man is desperate. Goes and bangs the door down almost, shameless audacity to come and say, I'm in need, please help me. You kind of go, Jesus, are you sure you got this illustration right? Yes, Jesus has got it pretty spot on. Because even if we are so desperately in need, we don't mind annoying our neighbor because the need is desperate. Jesus goes on and he tells them, uh, if anybody uh, 
I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And anyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Interesting words there. The word ask there, uh, and all three of them, ask, seek, and knock, in the Greek have got this, they're imperative verbs with, that have continuous action related to them. So the word ask is the word eteo, which means beg, call for, crave, desire. And it shows a requirement that's deep down inside. And so when I come to God, I don't flippantly say, God, you know what? I, you know, I've got this need. In Jesus' name. And you press on. If the need is so great, you're prepared to beg. You're prepared to beg. That's what etel means. Ask him. Ask him because you're serious about it. There are some people who are going uh, around and are saying, listen, you, uh, you don't pray the same thing twice because that shows lack of faith. Well, I wonder if that's true. If there is a deep desire, my friend, there will be begging. There will be begging. When Michael wants a lolly, need I say any more? When his father wants a Tim Tam, I won't say any more. You get the point, folk. We come before the true and living God, the one who created the universe, and we go down on our knees at least, and we beg. Because we have this deep requirement deep down inside that says, God, please, we need something and we need it now. And we carry on asking. We carry on begging because that's how big the need is. If we don't, then perhaps it's not a great need. Secondly, he says, seek. And you will find the word seek. Zitel. Seek in order to find. Not kind of this boy's look. Mom, where did you, uh, where's my jersey? Well, let me show you. It's right in front of you. Oh, okay. Seek in order to find. Look. Because as you've asked, you're seeking what is God's purpose and plan. Because God might have said no, and I missed it. And that's also an answer, you see. It might not be the answer I want. But I seek in order to find, find what? What God's perfect plan and purpose is for my life. So I look, as I come before him, I ask him and I seek his plan and purpose. Because if it's in his plan and purpose, he will fulfill that request. And then knock. Knock how? Well, knock the way he just explained the story earlier. Knock until an answer comes. Harass the person until an answer comes because there is a great need. So you get what we're talking about here. And folks, this is counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It's counter everything. Because we, we, are, we often think that we're a, an entitled bunch of people where we go, well, I'll ask for it and it's my entitled, uh, I'm entitled to have it and so I expect it. Listen, when we come before the Lord Jesus Christ, as we seek his face, as we ask him, he reveals himself to us as we continue knocking to find his purpose and will. Jesus actually uh, gives a second parable in chapter 18 of Luke, 
And so you kind of go, why? When it's done twice in the original, in, in the Greek, there's a purpose for it. And so Jesus gives uh, another parable, which is a little bit more extreme. A parable where this lady comes and she harasses this non-believing lawyer. Uh, and she says to him, listen, there, the, the, a, a judge is in control here. She comes to him and she says, I want justice for what's happened to me. And this man says, listen, perhaps it's about your God, but it's not about my God. Because I don't believe in God. But he says, listen, I will give you justice because of your persistence. Because of your persistence. And the verse says, because the widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now you say, well, that's radical. Well, it is radical. But that's how God's economy works. And so, Jesus said later on after these verses, what happens if your child, when your child comes and asks you for bread, will you give him a stone? Now, folks, that's important because what, what the context was that there, was there were stones that looked like little loaves of bread, not like the 800 grams that we have now, you know, sliced and everything. They were little loaves that size, but they looked like a stone. And so the point is being taken here or given by Jesus saying, listen, if your child comes and asks you for bread, there's no way you'll give him a stone. In other words, so the kid can hurt himself or the father can deceive the kid. That's not what a father does. That's not what a father does. Or perhaps the child comes and says, dad, I need some fish. Will dad give a snake? Those days there were uh, almost eels or, or, or fish that looked like snakes and that they could eat. And so Jesus is giving a parallel here and saying, no way. There's no way that the father will deceive the child. The third one is, will the child ask for a, an egg and the father will give him a scorpion? The way that scorpion crawls itself up, will uh, it looks like an egg. Will dad ever do that to the child? Well, absolutely not, exclamation mark, ten times. No, because that's not what a father-child relationship is all about. In fact, can I say that you and I are like children? You and I are like children. You know, if somebody asks me for something, I'll kind of go, uh. but if my child asks me for something, it cuts deep, deep down. I'll never forget, uh, Michael used to get nauseous when he was a kid. And so we would drive somewhere, and after a few turns, he'd say, Dad, need to stop, take him out of the car seat at the back, and he'd vomit outside, excuse the illustration. And then I would start crying, because I couldn't watch this kid, couldn't watch this kid in pain and agony. And then once kind of whatever came out that was supposed to come out, he was all good to go. His father was still crying. Here's this little kid patting his dad. It's okay, Dad. I'll never forget that. Because you know what? There is no way, there is no way a normal father-child relationship says, I don't care about you. That's not normal. And you and I are like children before the true and living God. And we come, and I've got no problem to beg my Father in heaven. No problem. Because if I'm in desperate need of something, Lord, please, please answer my prayer. If you look at this passage in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 10, an interesting story. 
interesting story, and I'll read it to you. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to the guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out of the public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Let's just go back there, Charles, for one second. You see what's being said there? So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Wow. Then, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He stuck He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Let me just say a couple of things in closing about this passage. You see Peter here in prison, awaiting execution, probably about to be headed the next day. And we read in verse 7... Angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Interesting. That word, uh, woke him up, means fatasso, he smote him. He smote him. It's interesting because at the end of this chapter, there's an interesting passage that talks about Herod being struck and smoted. Same word that's been used, fatasso, same word in the Greek that's been used to knock him down. But this one is to wake Peter up. Wake Peter up. The passage at the end about Herod being struck down and killed with worms coming in and eating him up. Same word. You find the irony in that. You know what? When people pray, God's will will get done. Sometimes ironically and counter to the world's perspective. But we need to come before God and enter into that holy place and seek his face so he can speak to us face to face. Struck him. Kind of going, take that mate. Wake up. The hand of God. What happens in verse 10? We read that the doors opened. First time automatic doors get spoken of in the Bible. (laughs) The Bible says the iron gate leading to the city, it opened for them of its own accord. Wow. Ever picked that up? Kind of they sensed his gate sense Peter was coming through. Important. You see the hand of God when God's people are seeking his face. And then who, uh, who is praying? The church. Regular people. Not these holy apostles. Just regular people are praying. We read about uh, a bit later in the chapter. Interesting to note. This is so 
counter-expectation. Because he comes out of prison, he goes to the home where the people are praying, and he knocks on the door, and a lady opens the door, and she just leaves him hanging. Yeah, mate, what's up? Oh, goodness, it's you, Peter. I'm probably hallucinating, she thinks. She goes inside, she says, Peter is at the door. And then it's probably his angel. Because those days, the Jewish people believed that every person had a guardian angel. In fact, there was an angel for everything, an angel for the earth, an angel for the planets, and going down, an angel for you and for me. In fact, there's an angel for every blade of grass. That's how they believe. And so she, they say to her, no, she's probably an angel. And they leave him hanging there. Eventually they get there and they let him in. What can you and I learn from that in closing? Number one, whatever the problem was, they talked to God about it. Peter is about to be beheaded. They don't know what the outcome is. So I'm not going to go into too much detail because time has run out. But there was these two things called morning prayer and evening prayer you pick up in Eugene Peterson's book, Answering God on How to Pray the Psalms. And your morning prayers are those concerns that you bring to God about the world. But your evening prayers were your personal prayers. So you could bring them before the Lord, and as you brought them before the Lord, He would give you peace of heart and peace of mind so you could sleep well. I don't know if you've ever been to bed and you couldn't sleep because of the stresses of your life. I'm almost certain we all have. But as we bring them before the Lord through earnest prayer, we can leave them at His feet. And so whatever the problem was, they talked to God about their problems. Just like a child comes to the Father, talks to God. We have direct access to God. We need to talk to Him. Secondly, prayer is communication with the true and living God. You don't have to fill out a hundred forms. And once you get interviewed, well, we'll see if you tick all the boxes. And then we might uh, decide to go ahead uh, with whatever your request is or not. It's a communication with the true and living God. And folk, we often take prayer as monologue, but it's actually dialogue. If you've done Communication 101, you'll know that there is always a sender who sends a message to the receiver. That's not communication. That's monologue. Effective communication is when the receiver responds to the sender. There is communication back and forth. That's communication. If I come before the Lord and I bring all my requests before Him and I don't spend a bit of quietness before him, that's monologue. Because God is dying to say to me, yes or no about something, but I've turned my ear to against him. And so part of prayer is listening to what God has done. To, for God to be given the opportunity to speak to me. So I don't get smoked, if you like. So I don't get a knock and get woken up, perhaps rudely. And so God is saying, listen, I want to meet your need. Hear me out. Hear me out. Uh, John Piper says, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. 
It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for small comforts in the den. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know that prayer, what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. You come before him and you're serious about it because there is a war taking place. It's a war between my heart and my mind and a war between spiritual things and earthly things. And so we need to be serious about prayer. And as we come and communicate with God, that's serious. Basically, John Piper says, it's rebellion against the status quo. Get it? It's rebellion against the status quo. So we come before him praying for ourselves, our family, our community. There are people out there in Kublap that are in desperate need. It's our prerogative to come before God. And then finally, and in closing, they were persistent. They were persistent. And we learned that in, in the teaching that Jesus gave uh, in, in the parables and the teachings uh, to, uh, to his people through Luke. You see, the devil wants to destroy the church. And so we need to be in constant unity and in prayer before him. Folk, we have our own prayer meetings here at the church. It's more than just coming here. On a Tuesday night between 6 and 7, we have prayer here, communal prayer. On a Friday morning, 7.30 till 8.30, we have prayer here. It's just great to get together and to seek God's face and to give him glory for what he is doing. But also in our own personal lives, we need to continue that and persistently seeking God's face. The church, while Peter was in prison, probably not knowing what the outcome would be, it would have been a bad outcome they anticipated, they came before the Lord and God used them to change the direction of the world. We know uh, Spurgeon, that great preacher, says, some fruit you have to keep shaking to get down. Some fruit you need to keep shaking to get down. Some of the fruit that's up there, you need to carry on shaking. Be persistent because at the right time, it will fall down. And I think that's a lesson. And so just as that lady went and and, uh, harassed that judge to get justice, so we need to come before the Lord and be persistent. Just as uh, that neighbor went and and spoke uh, to his to his neighbor saying, we need some bread, carried on, carried on. And God fulfills his plan and purpose. We read about that in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 4, and now. And then next week I'll I'll, uh, be preaching on on God raising up Paul and sending sending him off through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. I found this prayer by uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, uh, and it says this, Lord... Lord Jesus, teach me to be generous, teach me to serve as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not heed the wounds, to toil and not seek for rest, to labor and not to seek reward, except that of knowing that I do your will. To come before him, seek him in every area of my life, so his plan and purpose gets fulfilled. The power of earnest prayer. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. 
If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.